Hello and welcome back to ESPN Scrum Reset. It's Sam Bruce and Christy Doran here to, um, I guess, unpack uh, a dramatic weekend and uh, Monday even. It's Tuesday morning here in Sydney. Uh, a busy weekend, as I said, in Australian rugby and a dramatic one at that. Uh, Christy, welcome back to you, mate. It'll probably be for the final time this year. Um, we're both dual break and, and you've got some big things on the horizon. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll pick it up again in 2024. But before we do, mate, uh, Hamish McLennan um, officially exited uh, Rugby Australia. His role as chairman and position on the board completely on Sunday evening. It, it kind of felt for probably, you know, certainly in my mind, middle of the World Cup, that we were going to get to this point at some stage, whether it was going to be before the end of the year, before the start of next season, or early on um, next year. Um, it, it, to me, it felt inevitable that, that Hamish would be either marched or would resign at some point. Uh, in the end, those two kind of things, I guess, combined with the the letter that the States dropped on Friday evening. Um, just talk us through, mate, um, I guess your synopsis of, of where and and how we got to this point and, and just how things unfolded over the weekend. Good to join you, Brucey. Yeah, never a dull moment in Australian rugby and let's hope that 2024 is a hell of a lot better on the... Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, both on on the field and off the field because there's been turmoil all over the place. But look, it was probably halfway through. Yeah, I, and halfway through the World Cup is is a good way to kind of um, to, to bring it up to where it all started and kicked off because at the same time, uh, it was probably what two weeks before the World, three weeks before the World Cup that Australia and Rugby Australia announced this alignment process yep. where they. They said it was a historic kind of day where all five teams had signed up to, in principle, the alignment of centralisation, and that was going to be both high performance and and commercial. And very quickly and early on, it looks like the cart has been put before the horses. And yes, there were some that were uh, like the Waratahs and the Rebels further down the road, and that's probably because of the precarious nature of where they were financially. Um, and then there was others like the Brumbies going, hang on a moment, we're probably fearful of our own super rugby licence. The Queensland Reds going, we're fearful of everything to do with the Rugby Australia. And uh, and c- commercially, they were very much going, well, we're, we're fine at the moment. Ballymore's set in stone, uh, you know, with, you know, Les Kiss is on board. Uh, we've already kind of agreed to a bit of high performance uh, alignment there with, with him coming on. And and when uh, the lawyers and Deloitte started going down and marching down to Canberra, uh, that's when the alarm bell started sounding. The Brumbies weren't happy. The, the Thompsons of the world, the Phil Thompsons weren't happy. Uh, the Matt Nobs uh, were, 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 were frustrated. Uh, the Canberra government and the ACT government started coming on board going, well, hang on, like, how are we going to think about building a new stadium if the Brumbies aren't even going to be there? So... Yeah, we're, I was fielding phone calls right throughout that month period and, and you knew eventually there was going to be a tipping point. And that tipping point really was when the when the Wallabies exited out of the World Cup. And it was it was a matter of not 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 uh not if, but when. And that drew to a bit of a crescendo, I think, last week, where on Tuesday I was told within forty eight hours something was gonna occur. Uh and and it was either going to—he's either going to go or he's going to stay. But it's all going to happen in forty-eight hours. As it turned out, it was seventy-two hours. 
uh, and, and that was Friday afternoon with Brett Clark calling Hamish McLennan uh, and saying that he had lost the support of, of the member unions, in fact, six of them, which is a significant amount. And as we saw over the weekend, a lot of a lot of uh, backrooming, uh, a lot of phone calls, a lot of trying to shore up from support. We saw for the forests, we saw Cadbury with Darren O'Brien, we saw uh, Phil Kearns come out in favour of Hamish McLennan and his idea of 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 reform and centralisation, even though the, the six rebel member unions were, were suggesting it wasn't to do with centralisation, it very much was. And and the Wallabies' terrible year, the, the so-called captain's peak of, of getting both Eddie Jones to the Wallabies and, and bringing Joseph Suwali here in 2024, that did nothing to help Hamish McLennan because of, of the way the Wallabies and Stephen turned out. Uh, the fact that they couldn't get a private equity deal across the line meant that there was no immediate relief uh, here right now for the, the member unions, which were all struggling. So uh, it was no surprise that Hamish McLennan ends up work, walking uh, or being booted out by Sunday night at, at you know half past eight or so because they were fed up, really, and they would probably save themselves the board to an extent, knowing that if... If they supported Hamish and McLennan, it was very likely that an EGM would be called uh, and perhaps the whole board and not just Hamish and McLennan would be forced to go. There's a couple of things to unpack here, and I'm sure probably a lot of Australian rugby supporters, when they saw that letter either on Friday night or across the weekend from the member state unions, were, were probably surprised to learn that the Northern Territory, uh, Tasmania, South Australia, these three state unions have a vote in this current Australian constitution. Now, um, that has been viewed as problematic in, in some corners for, for a while now. Um, certainly, you know, hardened rugby types on the East Coast in Queensland and, and New South Wales in particular will go, well, do they really deserve this much sway at the top table of Australian rugby? And there's probably an argument to be made there. Um, but Australia is obviously headed down this path of, of being having a national footprint and five super franchises, and of course WA is separate to the force as well. So there's a fair few little different machinations at, at work there. Um, I, it kind of feels like centralisation it, it will be achieved to some degree across yes. the franchises. And, and and Dan Herbert was speaking about this yesterday, and Phil Wall uh, last week when uh, the Waratahs became the first. To, kind of hand over everything completely, didn't they? They're going to be right at the, yep, we're all in. And then it's probably going to come somewhere to the Rebels and potentially the Force and the Brumbies and Reds look like they'll be happy to do sort of strength and conditioning and um, alignment in, in kind of the rugby specific stuff, but but keen to hang on commercially and, and with a few other, holding a few other bits of IP back, particularly in the case of the Brumbies, I think, given their performances in Super Rugby. So uh, I don't know if that was, you know, so much of it in, behind McLennan. It was more around... For me, um, and he tried to backtrack this too in that interview with Stan Sport a couple of weeks ago that um, that the Eddie Jones wasn't a, a captain's pick, and and Dan Herbert kind of, I guess you know, backed that up yesterday a little bit, saying there was a lot of discussion there. I, I don't think by what he was saying yesterday that that was clearly a unanimous decision at board level. I think there was some opinions that were certainly raised, um, some concerns around bringing Eddie back, as you would hope there would have been given what we know about. Eddie and clearly since what we've learned even more so. Um, but then once that decision was made, his such fervent support of Eddie throughout this year when when everyone could see that that things weren't rosy, they were headed in the wrong direction. 
Um, he had to stand by him given, you know, he kind of framed it as this guy's the saviour of Australian rugby. And and I think in the end, that was as much as a driver behind this decision as perhaps the centralisation piece, which as I say, it kind of looks like it will come off at some point and to varying degrees. Yeah, I, I agree. A high performance line will come and, and so it should. And the fact that it hasn't already come in, you know, the best part of 30 years in professional rugby is ridiculous <laughs> in itself. But, uh, yeah, and, and there needs to be the states, and before we get to the Eddie, Eddie stuff there, there needs to be a realisation from the states that what's gone on just simply isn't good enough. You know, being in five different boats, rowing down the river, it's it's not worked. Uh, and, and and there is an acceptance of that, but there still is a reluctance to, to, to give away, um, give much wriggle room there. And for instance, you know, Brad Thorne in the past historically wasn't particularly uh, forthcoming with uh, with with results and uh, with the, where they were from a strength and conditioning point of view, uh, particularly, and and I have no idea why. Uh, it, it seems ridiculous. Why wouldn't you try to help you know, in the entire game? And um, as for uh, yes, Eddie Jones and the and the Wallabies and the tipping point there, completely completely agree. And, and Dan Herbert, to his credit, never has been one to have wanted coaches to be tossed out willy-nilly and I think we've kind of spoken about that in the past do we and, and I remember in 2018 he and I speaking for quite a long story at the time but you know he, he raised the point so we saying that Michael Checker or Ewan McKenzie or Robbie Deans are bad coaches you know but they end up being chewed up and spat out by the Wallabies and generally speaking never to return and um, what why is it that that Australian rugby coaches who arrive don't leave in the same way with their stocks up, but rather down. And it's it's to do with the systemic issues that are plaguing the game. And he very much was pushing, pushing for centralisation five years ago, and that's well before he was even been on the board. So uh, he hasn't uh, veered away from his beliefs there, and, and that's a point that needs to be kind of to get across. Um, and you know he had he does have a bit of experience from seeing it from the other side of the fence, doesn't he? With his time with the Queensland Reds, yep. which he wanted to be CEO uh, come twenty sixteen. Richard Barker ended up getting appointed into that role after it was a split vote, and uh, Damien Forley ended up as chairman, using his power there to pick uh, Barker. Um, and Herbie, from my understanding. He he was suggesting and and putting forward the point that well I think we should bring Eddie Jones back but come twenty twenty four let's give Dave Rennie the opportunity here uh, and I, that's my strong understanding what occurred and he was the one that questioned Joseph Suwali uh, and his arrival and whether or not we should be spending money there uh, instead of firming up our, our younger generation coming forward um and, and we heard that point yesterday didn't he where he yep. said look I, I think we need to start start looking very much inwardly at our grassroots rather than across the other side of the fence with regards to rugby league players so wouldn't surprise me going forward if there's uh, that gets parked uh that idea of bringing high profile recruits and spending and you know, significant amounts of money, and I think that'll support and endear themselves to the wider rugby generation. But yeah, as you say, Eddie Jones and the decision for him to come back and how significantly it backfired. Someone's always 
it has to, and that's how it works in business. There's always a poor guy, isn't there? Or sure. a person when we saw it with Optus just in the last 24 hours as well. So it was no, no great surprise. Um, what was I found a little bit more surprising was that Dan Herbert, not just an interim uh, chairman, yeah. but wants to do it for the long haul. Uh, and I asked him whether or not he thought some of the decisions that were made in being on the rugby committee, in being on the board, whether or not that perhaps compromised his ability to usher through change uh, and implement the reform measures that wanting, considering the Waratahs, the Melbourne Rebels, Rupert divided with the other member unions. So being able to bring them all back into the tent, ensuring that you keep Cadbury as a sponsor, as well as the forests who have got deep, deep pockets, uh, they need to be able to maximise and bring everyone together going forward. Yeah, Forrest just uh, acquired a Cobra to go with uh, R.M. Williams. So who knows, maybe uh, they enjoyed those shots of uh, Eddie Jones in the Cobra walking up the departure lane at Kingsford Smith last year and thought, we've got to have that too. Um, but uh, as you say, deep pockets and, and certainly not someone you want to scare off. So there's a, there's a job to be done there, isn't there? Um, Cadbury, you mentioned, uh, but surely Herbert's appointment is going to be welcomed in Queensland. And, you know, I, I put this question to Phil Wall back when he was appointed CEO um, officially, what was that, late June. Um, the fact that he's another guy from this long line of, uh, you know, North Shore Sydney types and as who was there asked the other day, oh, Tamish McLennan, sorry, in that very good interview with, with Stan Sports, Nick McArdle, um, oh, it's just a coincidence we keep coming out of the, the same school. Um but this, you know, that that's uh, clearly still the, the two power states in Australian rugby. It's where, you know, 90% of the players come out of roughly, I would think, off the top of my head um, between New South Wales and, and Queensland and, and the ACT, a few as well. Um, there's got to be a little bit of a shift now that thinking from Queensland, at least, that we've got one of our own down there in Sydney. Well, not living down there or being entrenched at, at Moore Park, but on the board, uh, not only on the board, but in this senior role as as chairman, and um, how he works, you know, initially with with Phil War, I think is going to be interesting. You would expect that he will take a bit of a back seat now and let Phil um, kind of uh, be the face of Rugby Australia moving forward. And and Hamish didn't act like that, did he? He was more of a, an executive chairman, if you like, that almost kind of felt the need to do both roles. Um, was always available to the media, which was great for you and I. Um, and no doubt, you know, generated some headlines throughout the year. Not all of them good, um, but clearly got the game back in the press uh, at different stages. Um, but then also probably overstepped, in my opinion, as well. He, he needed to pull back. And I don't think that that'll be a concern with Daniel Herbert. I, I think he'll be very much um, proactive, but not with the same... Aggression's probably the wrong word, but, um, you know, overarching confidence that perhaps is, is sometimes misplaced. Yeah, and Brett Clark in his interview yesterday afternoon, he, he said um, that the lack of humility in Hamish McLennan's language uh, and his interactions with the media was harmful from his perspective. And I, I dare say that the six member unions, he was speaking on behalf of them all. So, yeah, I do think that he did overreach at times. He probably didn't help himself when the agents or or even, in fact, journalists rang up Amish McLennan and say, Paid Haas is interested in, in joining uh, rugby. Uh, what do you think? And I, I, Amish said, look, 
and I know I'm privy to a couple of these conversations where he would say, okay, well, of course we'll entertain him, but, um, you know, there's a fair bit going on just at the moment. So, um, and would need to you know, see more detail, et cetera, et cetera. But people use those as quotes and then all of a sudden it becomes a paper and a headline and, and that's showing Hamish's willingness to engage with the media. But clearly that rubbed a lot of people off the wrong way when they were thinking, well, hang on, we need to get the 15, the 16, 17 year olds rather than paying a million bucks plus on, on rugby league players. So yeah, I agree. You're not going to see uh, Dan out in the media in the same way. He likes to do some of his work and the sidelines and be a bit more of a backroom kind of figure. Uh, Phil War, I think will, and I, and I think he always intended Hamish that Phil would become more of the spokesperson between the two, but when you're the chairman who's made all the decisions in the last three years, yeah. he felt the need to defend himself with regards to Eddie Jones and the rest. So that's why I think that you saw Hamish recently speak, still in the media when he, in fact, intended to probably not be there so much. Um, uh, but, yeah, this is a great opportunity now for Phil War. He's, he distanced himself last week from, from Hamish. That was really clear with some of his language, some of the... The fact that no, we don't need to be chasing rugby league players. Um, so uh, he didn't necessarily come out and defend Hamish or back him up or say that he should be the chairman for some time. He said that with the, the stakeholders and um, for them to decide. Uh, but now that he has distanced himself, it's an, he's probably separated himself and hasn't. You know, he's not going to be tarred with the same brush. I think uh, that that Hamish has been so an opportunity now for this board to go forward into the new year and they need to be able to make some decisive decisions over the next couple of uh, next three, four, three, four weeks, particularly, which is the director of high performance, which will be implemented and, and very much lead the charge to get the next Wallabies coach, which will be appointed before the super rugby season and uh, signing off on the debt deal, which will take place over the next two weeks as well, which is, in my understanding, between the 60 uh, and 80 million mark, uh, probably mixed, mixed reports or mixed understanding um, whether or not it'd be closer to 60 to 80. Um, but there'll be a fair bit of money come back into the game and some of that will go towards uh, the states. Others will go towards um, uh, women's rugby. Um, but there's many mounts to feed. But and, and, of course, some of these big appointments that need to be made over the, over the next month or two. Yeah, just before we continue on the women's rugby side of things, I think it was the the last pod we might have finished with the Wallaroos still had one game to go there um, against Wales and uh, a match they managed to win despite going down to 13 players to finish third in that W15 competition. So that's uh, probably the best great result, result. best result in their history. Um, I know early days, I think they might have won a couple of bronze at the World Cup or certainly won going back a while in the very, very fledgling days of, of women's international rugby. But um, massive result and as we said I think in that podcast showed what they could do with some time together um, some real kind of being involved in a ho- proper high performance environment not the one that they're seemingly in and out of through um, the lead up to Super Rugby and other other camps so it's a real step forward for them um, in, in addition to that Brucey I think they played eight test matches this year massive, uh, the, massive. The, the most they had so that's a, a great sign of being able to improve the continuity the cohesion levels of the team uh, and 
and you'll see that go forward. You know, with these competitions that have been put in place now by World Rugby, that's a, that's a massive step forward for the game. As Herbie spoke about yesterday, there's still challenges with uh, not being huge amounts of money there and it being spread way too thin across the board. But there are other ways to ensure that you improve the overall system and, and that, you know, simply by playing eight matches will, will certainly help. Absolutely. Um, now, clearly, uh, the Wallaroos were one of a number of people um, upset by the signing of Joseph uh, Suwali'i um, earlier in the year, which, you know, from my understanding, was a, was a long-term project, as I had been told on a number of occasions that he was very much looking good for 2025. Now, news last week, um, you may or may not have seen it, uh, classic Danny Widler, Channel 9. Um, hello to Danny if you're listening. Um, on the sports broadcast on Nine News Sydney, sure I went to Brisbane as well, potentially, um, around that he was speaking with uh, Roosters chairman, long-term chairman, Supremo, basically the almost the number two guy in the NRL, number two, number three, in terms of the power that he yields in, in Nick Politis, the godfather of the Roosters, that um, yeah, Joseph's already told him that he's going to be back in, in 2028. Now, certainly wouldn't be surprised if he did that. Um but if we jump forward to, well, let's say the end of next year, because I think his contract actually starts October 1, 2024, officially. So there is a an opportunity that he could go on the spring tour hypothetically next year. Now, that would be a big in, goal. In, well, in much the same way that Marika Corabetti did. Exactly. Was that 2016 or 17 from memory? Um, and and Suilasi uh, Vunavalu was, was invited to camp, came a couple of days after winning that premiership with the Storm in 2020. He didn't. In fact, by a test, but it wasn't an opportunity to yeah come in, see it all, upskill. So that may happen next year. Who knows? But let's just backtrack it to the here and now, and and certainly um, yesterday again with with Dan Herbert on what was probably a about a twenty five minute half hour uh, Zoom call that you and I were both on. Um, he was asked point blank, is you know a rugby Australia trying to well investigating a way of getting out of that contract? There's murmurings out there and. Uh, the NRL world, as there always are, uh, the rumor mill is as good as anywhere on the planet that um, Suwili'i may want out of the deal. Um, the Roosters have negotiated a bit of cap space in, in recent times, but they, I think Angus Crichton may now be poised to sell as well. So anyway, that's beside the point. But um, potentially if that was the case. Now, uh, Daniel Herbert said, no, we're, we're not looking at that at the moment. Um, I guess if the situation was to change, that Joseph came to them and said, look, I don't want to come. Rugby Australia may well be inclined to say, okay, yep, if you don't particularly want to come anymore, then we're not perhaps as desperate as to have you um, as opposed to earlier in the year when we did potentially have private equity money coming in, a better Wallabies World Cup result, some less few other dramas across the game that have been whipped up by alignment slash centralization. Um I don't think it will happen, but at the same time, it wouldn't surprise if if this deal doesn't come off next year. All right, absolutely wouldn't surprise me if if Joseph Swale is not in the game from from the end of next year. There's, you know, it is and it has been reported and it is right that his deal is upwards towards that one point six million dollar mark. But my understanding is a lot of that, and and perhaps even as much as half, is through uh, the Rugby Foundation. Foundation, yep. And we've seen that with David Pocock and Israel Folau in the past, that that some of the really high contract earners 
and probably Michael Hoop previously as well, that 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 their salaries do get made up from foundation money, which is private people putting money together, raising money, and to to assure that you know some of the best talent remains in the game. Now, uh, Rugby Australia, the Rugby Australia Foundation would be involved in that. I think the New South Wales Foundation would be involved in that. That money still probably has to be raised. So, uh, whether or not that has been, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, but. Yeah, it would not surprise me if he's not involved with the game. I think the question is, is he going to actually add value to the game? And I think he, I think he would. He's a good player. He's a very good player. Probably can play across multiple positions, and he's got a a foundation in the game, having been a Australian schoolboy where he played along and a, and a recent rugby player. Not yeah. a case of Roger Tuivasa Sheck that was ten years, and we saw the difficulty that he had, um, and has now gone back to the Warriors, of course. Yeah, and, and even Roger had moments where he looks and he did play for the All Blacks. It's just the All Blacks are a very, very good team. I think Roger Tuivasa-Sheck probably would have featured much more prominently in an Australian system. But that's beside the point. Uh, Suwali, I think, can still have a significant significant impact. Well, the Israel Falau, an out-and-out star in Australian rugby, yes. He won three John Earls medals during about a six-year period in the game. So we can't deny that rugby league players can succeed in rugby union. Um, going into uh, perhaps a new, a new deal, maybe with Nine Stand, maybe with someone else, is he going to get more people watching the game? I think he would. Uh, do, do Australia need an outstanding fullback? Uh, yes, they do. Have they got one? Perhaps. But I think he would add value to the game. And, and if he can play a part in the Wallabies winning a Bledisloe Cup, pay him however much you want. Because that's what Australia needs, and some superstars in the game. Do they have them at the moment? Probably not. There's a few very good players, but none of them have really been able to make that huge leap. So we'll see. Uh, for me, I, I don't mind either way whether or not he comes or, or goes. But I think what going forward, it is essential that Australia start prioritising those 14 to 15 to 16 year olds. And there's many mechanisms of way of how you can do that, but there needs to be more proactiveness in the spaces. Um, uh, scouts out there um, and and head coaches going out looking at schoolboy rugby. We know that the private school is is where a lot of the players come through. We need to ensure that they're not getting rugby league contracts and and uh, uh, being put through school on on those deals. We need to be much more proactive in that space. Well, it's almost for me, Christy, that 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 horse is bolted. You know, funnily enough, on Friday night. Um, as I was having a, a couple of quiet beers with some friends, some mates um, here in Sydney and uh, uh, a woman, a, a lady of middle age, um, happened to overhear our conversation and started on, oh, you're talking about rugby league? And said, oh, yeah, we kind of are at the moment, but oh, do you follow rugby? Yeah, yep, here we go. He's actually a rugby journalist. And anyway, so we got talking around and the case had been that her son um, had recently been um, talking with a rugby league club. Um, and you know, uh, they'd gone into a meeting with a, a Sydney team who I won't name and, um, had been told, oh, here's the contract. This is what we can offer you at this point in time. It's X amount. Um, I won't reveal the details of that either, but, um, and the parents, um, which the child was with their father at the time. And, um, he advised that the son didn't sign that deal. Um, and was talking to, uh, whoever the, was it the aged, sorry, the, the, uh, recruitment manager, probably at an NRL club saying, well, well, most kids just do right now, if you get presented with that 
opportunity um, uh, at that age. Uh, and this is a rugby rusted on family uh, from a rugby school, top rugby school in Sydney. Um, didn't on this occasion, but if that's the temptation, if that's what's being offered at, at 15 and 16, then you can see why people do get angry then when they go and get Joseph Suili at 1.5, 1.6 million um, six years later. Um, now, we know that rugby can't compete with rugby league because essentially you've got five teams competing against 17, probably soon to be 18 in the coming years. Um, who knows? Um, but they're competing for pretty much the same talent because a lot of kids, I would suggest that somewhere between 30 and 50% play both codes at some stage growing up. Um, and it's very tough for rugby in particular, not only in the financial position that it is, but just the sheer weight of numbers and, and opportunities that are out there in rugby league as opposed to rugby, that uh, it's very hard to compete. So there's an issue there. And I feel that, that coming back to Dan Herbert again and, and Phil Wall by extension, I feel like these two guys will have a deep understanding of that, that, that we've got to get back into, um, and pathways are a part of alignment, right, as well. But, you know, the the under-15s competition that's been set up, I think, is a is a great advantage. But there's also an argument there where you look at some of the players in those teams that are already signed to rugby league clubs. Um, uh, so has the horse bolted there? Should those positions be taken up by kids that, you know, are still considering both? Um, or is it the case like Suili, you hope that one day maybe they might come back, albeit on, you know, the highest contract potentially ever um, offered in Australian rugby. So th there's a lot of things there. Uh, there's almost a little bit of a rant, Christy, and I apologise. are going to be probably tough to, to break down. But um, just a, a little, you know, story from, from Friday night at the pub, but one that I'm sure a lot of people out there who listen to this podcast will have had very similar interactions with, with people within their rugby circles. Yeah, and and you do hear those stories all the time, and uh, I think it's it's funny that, and I won't say which which former Wallaby, but a very uh, respected rugby voice in Australian rugby, and and his son a few years ago was approached by the West Tigers, and perhaps that's perhaps the one team you don't want to be approached by at the moment. But well, all my my dragons as well, yeah. <laughs> But but he said, look, if, if my son's being approached and being scouted by rugby league, like they're just everywhere because he was saying that his son's not particularly great and, um, at at rugby, and so he he was like, well, okay, interesting. But but it is, you know, the Angus Crichtons, and we do get fed up by the fact that there's so many of these stories, and they go on to kick goals, and you know, the Kalen Pongers of the world that do play both sports. That's not a bad thing. You've just got to be there and you've got to be present. And uh, I, I didn't mind one suggestion offered up, which was we need to start to, we know that the contracts are higher and higher across the game. They're probably too high um, across rugby league and rugby union, but start incentivizing player contracts in rugby, pay them X amount and, you know, they get and withhold a little bit until they get back in the community and they start, mentoring 10 kids throughout whatever region they're in so that they build a relationship with kids going forward so that there's more reason for them to to join rugby so if you've got an israel follow you're mentoring 10 kids between the age of 14 15 16 so that when an offer is put in front of them they go well hang on i actually want to be a wallaby because i know what this wallaby what they can do i want to 
Uh, and if you would not just to do it with Falao, but do them with all 200 players involved in the Australian rugby ecosystem that we're mentoring 10 kids per, per year. And, you know, that's 2,000 people. Hopefully my maths is right. Um, and that they're just simple solutions where not only are the players going to be upskilling their own skill set in terms of coaching, um, uh, perhaps that leads them to become a coach later in the day, but they, they build this rapport because... There was the story of of Walau being introduced to Swali, Swali spending a day or two with the Wallabies. But is a day or two enough to change the idea of what a player wants to become? And I don't think it is. It needs to be a reoccurring thing over over a significant amount of time for these uh, for someone's uh, mind and mindset to change. I think so. Yeah, there has to be much more in this space. Um, there need to be much more, you know, we, we have so many players of different sizes in the game, but at times we don't allow for their size and their body shape to fully develop. And and the Emmanuel Mathieu one is the perfect case where no one was able to say that this guy's going to be a player uh, in one year, but perhaps in three years. And we can't afford to keep a player in the game for three years. And there's so many so many of those sorts of cases that are going either to France or Japan. And they're the ones that are, at the moment, they're going to get cherry picked because they're not they don't cost that much money, and even though the Australian market has dropped significantly overseas, the Wallaby standing hasn't probably helped their stocks. There is still the, the physical skill set, the raw boned and brawn sorts of players that you send a video highlights person uh, to to a tape in in Japan or in France, and they will look at it and then they'll bring them over and go well if you're three months and see what what you can do and and that's simply because they have enough money but we need to be certainly looking at different ways of of keeping talent retaining talent and developing talent here and and we know that you know quite often the players that um get thrown out there in the media and the nrl in particular they played rugby with most of the time their backs or their edge back rowers um because those are the guys who score the tries who make the headlines etc now there's also a market out there that, um, you know, Australia, the World Cup in particular, we saw it, that how invaluable tight head props are, right? And after potentially your number 10, um, or maybe even on par with number 10, that you you want to have depth at, at number three because you can't, can't you can't win big games of test rugby without a solid set piece and you can't win your set piece with, without a solid tight head prop and depth in that position. Um, so it's imperative that, you know, we're not also, uh, Australia are not, just purely looking for these, you know, these superstar uh, outside backs, um, as probably has been the case um, in in rugby league in terms of all cross code athletes at that younger age. That we also need to prioritise. Australia needs to prioritise that um, that position as well, and um, because you just aren't going to win big games of rugby without it, um, mate. Uh, let's park that there for now. Um, the Wallabies coach, we we know. Um, it's not going to be appointed until the high performance um, manager is announced. And that's kind of looking maybe in the next two to three weeks, uh, potentially. So uh, that would kind of put us to, to early to, to mid December when, you know, Australian rugby, rugby circles would effectively be shutting down for the Christmas period as, as all corporates do. Um, that would then leave, I guess, January and, and most of February to get that position sorted. I want to ask you about Dan McKellar's interview with, Leicester TV, I believe it was probably about two or three weeks ago now that um, a lot of you may have seen on on social media, particularly on X or, or Instagram, wherever it may be, 
Um, a big kudos there for me too, because I managed to call it X instead of Twitter for about the first time uh, since that change was made. Um, how, what did you read into that? It, it was it was firm. It, it was you know very you know to the point as Dan McKellar likes to be. Didn't give a whole lot away, but but seemed to, I guess, confirm that he was committed to Leicester, but not entirely shutting the door on the Wallabies at the same time. How did you read it? I wouldn't read anything into it. None at all. I reckon Dan McKellar, if he was offered the Wallabies coaching job, would take it a heartbeat. And that's my, my, my thought on it. Uh, you know, we know what coaches mean when they're so-called committed. You know, Eddie Jones used that word 25 times throughout the World Cup. It's almost world. almost needs to be redefined with Oxford and uh, Cambridge yeah. dictionaries, I think, at this point. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like when the board kind of throws their support behind someone or a coach, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I think Dan McKellar would be would be interested. I wrote it at the time, and I don't know that, that a couple of days later you did that interview. I think it was with the BBC yeah, in Leicester, though. Um, oh, of, yeah. cor- of, of course, he's not going to um, come out and say, I'm, I'm wanting the job and I'm looking to get out. He's only been at Leicester for six months, less than six months. So uh, he's moved his family across the world. He's completely right about that. He's not going to go, you know, engage in multiple interviews and, and allow for something like what happened with Eddie Jones with, you know, perhaps the cat being let it out of the bag and not being able to, or the genie out of the bottle and not being able to put it back in. So, um, I, I, but here's no foregone conclusion, conclusion to be offered that, you know, he's still reasonably young in his coaching career, hasn't really coached overseas, a little bit of stuff when he was a player coach in Ireland um, back in the day. But, you know, Stephen Larkin's come out recently and said, yeah, of course, I'd be interested in that. He's probably the most seamless and easiest option to land because he's off contract with the Brumbies and would be able to go straight into a, a Wallabies year where he's coaching a number of them, whether or not he's, you know, is the easiest option the best option? I'm not sure. And I don't think necessarily that... I think there's enough people skeptical about whether or not he is a head coach or a really strong head coach uh, yet in his career. Uh, I don't think Michael Checker, given the rocky landscape that Australian rugby has navigated through, I don't think Michael Checker is the right option necessarily uh, or will be thought of in that way. Uh, but once again, he'll probably be a free agent towards the end of this year uh, if he indeed he does decide to to pass the baton on in Argentina. I wouldn't be surprised if Joe Schmidt or someone like that comes into the reckoning. Uh, he's a guy that has showed that he's got international experience. He's not just like an All Blacks coach or a New Zealand coach because he coached Ireland for so long. Uh, and so he's kind of thought of in a different lens and Yes, he came back to Ireland for family reasons, uh, and but we've seen more recently him start to edge closer and closer back into rugby. You know, from being a consultant to being an assistant coach, and now with Scott Razor Robinson being the All Blacks coach, and and probably for quite a while, I can't imagine him going back into the Super Rugby game. But being in Australia, it's pretty close. It doesn't take particularly long to jump between nations and. The significant piece in the puzzle there is now no Hamish McLennan. And I think there would have been a lot of people that would have been, and, and I do know this for a fact, there would have been a few people that, that would be resistant or hesitant to jump on whilst Hamish was there. So him no longer being there, I think, allows for a bit more trust to come back into the landscape, particularly given that Dan 
Herbert has been on the record multiple times that we've got to look beyond the head coach, beyond the individual, more about repairing the system. So if you're a prospective head coach, I think you're pleased to hear those sorts of things. It buys you more time. We know that there's a two big, big events on the horizon with the Lions series and the Home World Cup. More money will come back into the game. So I don't think it's as bad as role as some might have made it out to be. This is a big head coaching job. And if you're a big time head coach, you should be looking at it closely. Yeah, I asked uh, that Daniel Herbert yesterday around Wood Hamish's departure effect. Uh, the landscape, if you like, of the uh, recruitment for the Wallabies coach. And, and I, he kind of said, well, I don't know, but I tend to agree with you that there are p- potentially some op- options out there who were considering it, but uh, maybe on the proviso of, well, let's just, uh, you know, wait and see what happens on at the uh, the board level. Um, there's a bit of talk out there as well that, um, or certainly uh, I've heard that, you know, there is a Kiwi um, strong in consideration. Now, uh, as to who that might be, uh, you mentioned Joe Smith. Um, I guess Tony Brown and, and Jamie Joseph as a duo. Uh, Jamie Joseph back at the Highlanders, not in a head coach role, but more of a director of rugby now, I think, isn't it? So you would think that, you know, if he yeah. was interested, hypothetically, that would be an easier kind of role to exit from, and particularly given he's really only just started, I guess, in the past few weeks post-Japan. Um, uh, otherwise, I mean, I mean, Ian Foster would be a hell of a story, um, but I don't see it coming to fruition Fozzy uh, versus Razor. Uh, look, you'd love to see that, but I, yeah, I can't see it happening either. Um, but yes, I mean, a couple of months or, or certainly three months and, until February, we, Rugby Australia is hoping to have that position in place, which I guess makes sense because it then allows that coach the opportunity to get a good look at, at Super Rugby Pacific into that test series against Wales. Um, you know, potentially, if it was a Stephen Larkham, he may well stick with the Brumbies through that period and make that transition you probably got um, about a month between that final game. Sometimes it's a bit shorter and, and the first test in, in Wales might only be three weeks depending on when teams exit. But um, uh, it's very much a, a watch this space over the next few months and um, it will be interesting to see just uh, who lands in that job. Yeah, and the other thing that's important with that is is the coaching team. We saw, and I, I still strongly maintain, the Wallabies would have done much better had they had a a much stronger coaching team alongside Eddie Jones with some rugby intellect. The fact that they had more rugby league and AFL figures in that coaching team rather than rugby people with a very inexperienced team. And you think about how Scott Robinson presented to New Zealand rugby. He went to that as Foster did, um, I think with the changes in that team, but this is my coaching setup and these are going to be the people around me who are going to support it. Yeah. And I'd have no doubt that a, a McKellar, I would be able to bring in a Laurie Fisher, a, a Dan Palmer, and maybe that's too Brumby-centric, but he'd be able to bring in someone else. And maybe that's a, a Tony Brown for attack, or it's a, a, a Peter Hewitt or a Tim Sampson. There, there's plenty of good guys. Daniel Hallengar, who's got a great great relationship is, with yeah. Bill Wall. Or, um, I, I have no doubt he'd be able to formulate a team pretty well. Uh, uh, Bernie Larkin, yeah. Clearly, if he was there, uh, he'd have to be able to bring in some guys uh, who they might be. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but um, there's, yeah, that 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 idea of the coaching team is 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 really significant, and it can't be understated. And you need those guys going into the Super Rugby franchises as well as looking at schoolboy rugby because it can't just be it, the Super Rugby coaches. Yeah, they could probably take the 
and I would say soft option by and a cheap option by bringing Larkin and his assistant coaches with him this year. But what would that would mean? None of them would be going out across the Australian rugby landscape and looking at kids at schoolboy level because they'd be totally interested in uh, their own backyard, which is Super Rugby, and ensuring that the Brumbies or whoever might they might be go well. That's the that's the importance of having a, an assistant coaches that are separated to Super Rugby. Certainly is. Uh, anyway, a, an interesting space. Moving forward, a fascinating, uh, yes, couple of months to come and a fascinating year for Australian rugby. Uh, mate, right, that'll do us. Uh, episode 40 in the books. Um, that's a pretty amazing strike rate. And I know, tell them one more. I was just going to say a bit of signing news. Lockie Swinton uh, is going to head to Bordeaux. Uh, and I think that's a bit of a blow. I know that people that read my work probably think that I'm in love with Lockie Swinton. It's not <laughs> the case, but. Uh, I think that's a big one. He's a Marcus Cremel kind of type figure, and he was starting to find his straps last year around the Barbarians tour. And, and uh, Noah Lolasio was asked to stay on with Toulon for another month. Um, he's decided to come home because he realizes that next year's significant for his future he needs to ensure that he's a front of Jack Debrasini. And uh, that a bit of movement um, around the traps uh, and and getting a head of high performance in to start looking not just at the head coach, but also ensuring guys don't, in fact, go to both the rugby league uh, or overseas. That's important too, because at the moment, there's only a couple of figures doing that and their priorities are properly like fuel war, their priorities are elsewhere. So they're some of the things to look out for the, over the next month as well. Yeah, stability uh, in the game after a, um, well, catastrophe of a year really um, would be a great thing. All right, mate. Thank you for your efforts this year. You've actually done more pods than I have given. I had uh, six weeks off uh, for the birth of my son. Um, wish you all the best. Um, Thank you. Moving forward with, with that and, and a fantastic festive season. Thanks for your efforts this year. And um, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll pick it up. Again, maybe uh, early to mid-Feb and see where things are at and, and set ourselves for, for hopefully a less dramatic year with uh, maybe a few more wins. Where, where does, Just quickly, where does this one rank, Brucey, in terms of Australian rugby disasters and, and, and what's one reason for hope in 2024? Oh, geez, that's a good question. Um, oh, I think it rates at the top for me, mate, um, from what I've seen in, in my time covering the game professionally, which I think I worked out the other day was year number 10. For me, uh, going back, um, watching the game, even as a kid, uh, I, I can't think of anything that's had this much drama and, and been this this horrible on and off the paddock. Uh, one reason for hope. Um, that's a good question. Um, I think I've seen enough to suggest that there's a good Wallabies 23 out there. Um, it wasn't at the World Cup, um, but with the players that were injured that weren't selected... Um, the players that will have gained valuable experience, um, albeit hard experience, um, in France. I, I think that um, there will be a better return, probably really only around 50%. Again, I think of, of wins. I think that would be a, a good starting point next year. Um, but I I do see some some green shoots around the place. Yeah, yeah. I think certainly the West Australian showing rugby since the game went professional and uh, a reason for hope. I just think that... The stability of cards, uh, they're all a year older. Uh, the fact that the Queensland Reds have an average age of about 24, which is extraordinary, but 
they're, they're even another year down the track, the McDermott's, the McWrights, uh, the Wilsons, etc. So I think the front row stocks across the board are a fair bit stronger in the super franchises, and that'll help significantly in 24. Also, I'll give you one name, Angus Bell, uh, and leave it at that. I think he is the, the figure that Australian rugby can uh, be built around over the next few years. Um, right over, mate. Uh, Merry Christmas, or compliments of the season. We're still a month out from Christmas. It's a bit early. And you've gone. To, um, but it feels like Christmas, mate. It feels like I'm ready to roll over to January 1 already. Uh, have an awesome break, and we look forward to chatting with you again next year. Cheers.